for this time in your word. We thank you for your presence that's here tonight. And Lord, we just ask you that your precious Holy Spirit, even now, we thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit moving upon every single person that's going to be hearing this, whether it's live through various means or it's recorded. It may hear this down the road in a few months or years, but Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit move upon every single person. And Lord, help us by the Spirit of God to have good, fertile soil of hearts and minds. Lord, that we will be, um, by the grace of the Holy Spirit helping us, our minds will be focused. We're not going to be distracted. Lord, that we'll have eyes and ears of the Spirit. We'll be able to really just tune into what you're saying to us. And Lord, that, that you would speak through me your living seeds of truth sown into good, fertile soil. And Lord, it will be watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. Because Jesus taught us about the seed and the sower, and the word of God is the seed. And Lord, it needs to fall into good soil. And Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit, the wind of your spirit, carry this seed out among the nations of the earth. And Lord, it will go forth and accomplish that which you need it, for, need it to do, rather. And Lord, that you would watch over your word to perform it. And Lord, we ask you that everybody that's out there is going to be hearing this. Let your word go out as like a bright light that will shine forth and dispel the darkness and bring revelation truth. The washing of the water of the word. And Lord, we, uh, we stand together. Jesus said the birds of the air try to steal the seed, and that's the enemy. So Lord, we submit this unto you, and we bind up anything of the enemy that would try to hinder, distract, oppress, or come against this word and resist it in any way we command to be bound right now and to back off. And Lord, we thank you for your angels just clearing away any hindrance. This will go forth and accomplish that would you stand it forth to do. We stand on that promise. Your word will not return void. It will go forth. It will accomplish what you've sent it to do. And it will get where it needs to be. And so, Lord, we thank you for it. everything being accomplished in and through this, that your will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week, you know, normally I don't go through a book of the Bible, so this has been a little different for us, but this is a book that I felt the Lord wanted me to go through. We're living in what the Bible called the latter days, so we need to know what the Bible says about these days. So this is going to be a little different. Again, you'll want something to take notes with. You'll want a pen, and there's some things I'm going to go through that you're definitely probably going to want to jot down. So not getting too much of a rabbit trail in this but in my own personal life you know God really used the the life and the story of David and his journey from where he was to where he ended up coming into his destiny God always really used that in my life personally to teach me some things so that's been a, a wonderful Bible lesson for me on a personal level but on on the same note God has always used the church in Ephesus to speak to me about the type of church that he wants River of Life to be and the type of church he wants me to pastor. And I believe as we go through this tonight that you're going to see some things maybe you haven't seen before. But this is where I'm coming from tonight. It's about the church of Ephesus. It was a revival church. All right, before I get into that, though, I want to pick up where I left off last week because I might have lost some people. So we talked about in Exodus about the lampstand. Now this is important because it's discussed here. As we get into Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7 is what I'm going to cover tonight. So the lampstand is referenced. So the law of first reference in the Bible 
is the lampstand was first mentioned in the tabernacle. So as we get into this tonight, we're going to cover some things about the lampstand, okay? And so remember last week, I'm not going to go back through all of it, but last week we talked about the lampstand and how the root system here had to do with the covenant that was cut with Abraham. Jesus came up out of that root system, okay? And then the branches. He said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. So on these branches, and this is important because you can read this here in Exodus 25, starting in verse 33, it says, Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in one branch, a bulb, a flower, and a cup, and like an almond tree, okay? So you're going to have three sets of three. Y'all following me? You can just look this way. Three sets of three on the branches. But on the center branch, there was going to be four sets of three that went up. And four times three is 12. It's governmental. So this is important because the middle branch speaks of Jesus and the government will be upon his shoulders. So the center branch had a total of 12. But here's the interesting thing we were talking about last week. If you take the 12 in the middle... And then you have 9, 18, and 27, and you put that together, mathematically, it's 39, which there's 39 books in the Old Testament. And then you have 9, 18, 27, if you look at these three branches, and there's 27 books in the New Testament. So a total of 66 books that God, even in the days of Moses, when the lampstand was being fashioned, prophesied, through that, that we would have 66 books in our Bible. Isn't that amazing? And so this represents, in some respects, it represents the Word of God. Remember, this is God speaks of his family tree and how all of us, Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, we're brought together in him. But in that, it speaks of the Word of God because the Bible also says that the Word would be like a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet, but it also speaks of the Holy Spirit. So what God has given us as his family is both his word and his spirit. And so the, what the Bible calls in Revelation chapter 1, the seven spirits of God, there's only one Holy Spirit, but sevenfold. Remember the spirit of the Lord, the center branch, and then wisdom, revelation, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, which Isaiah talked about. So you have the Holy Spirit. There was oil here representing the anointing. And so you have both the Spirit of God and the Word of God that's prophesied in this lampstand that he has given us at his, as his family. Isn't that awesome? God gave us, this is his, represents his family tree. The root system goes back to the covenant that was cut with Abraham. Christ came out of that covenant. He fulfilled everything. We're all in him. And as his family... His family tree, he's given us his word and his spirit. Also, we saw last week as we looked at Revelation chapter 1 that the lampstand speaks of the local church. And so Jesus was referencing seven specific churches in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to deal with the first of the seven. So with that, he, there were seven golden lampstands representing those seven churches and he walked among the lampstands zami knows when the when jesus it says in the word of god that when we come together two or three gather in his name now it's important that people understand the greek means drawn together not just hanging out like a social thing but we're drawn together by the spirit 
when we come together that he's in the midst of us see so you have like a visual in revelation of the lord walking among the lampstands you know he walks among us his presence is here his power is here and many of you in the sound of my voice you've either experienced a new birth you've you've been baptized in the holy spirit here several of you have been healed physically or mentally and emotionally in various ways you've been healed even here recently have been a couple of significant healings many have been delivered from things that tormented your life jesus walks among the lampstand of river of life amen and he's the same yesterday today and forever so this lampstand it represents his family tree the the buds there um, are like an almond tree which is the first tree to blossom in israel when it becomes springtime beautiful white buds also there's oil in the lampstand so it speaks of like an uh, olive tree as well all right so does that make sense i just wanted to kind of pick up where i left off last week because i think by the time i got to that point um it was you know starting to lose some people there. there's so much information so hopefully um, we can cover everything tonight so a couple things if you want to look at the diagrams on the back of your notes just as you can kind of follow along there's a hebrew phrase shalosh regalim which means um the three pilgrim feast so you have the feast of passover which in hebrew is pesach and then you have pentecost which in hebrew is shavuot and then you have tabernacles in the fall which in hebrew is sukkot so you have those three feasts in the bible you were supposed to travel from where you were to jerusalem and celebrate those feasts there in the place that god chose which we know later was jerusalem now if you look at the diagrams just a couple quick things if you'll follow me tonight i'm taking the scenic route on purpose okay but i will get to my destination i'm getting to revelation chapter 2 but we've got to lay some groundwork okay so the first thing is is this menorah there's several revelations about um, the feast but this is one of them is it is a prophetic timeline isn't that awesome so you have the spring feast you have passover and by the way jesus died on passover day not the day before not the day after he died on passover that day so jesus fulfilled passover in every way as being our passover lamb perfect unblemished his blood was shed all right then he was taken off the cross when it would have been a wednesday that year and he was buried in a tomb three full days three full nights and his body was prophetically leaven speaks of sin okay he was unleavened bread he was without any sin and he was laid in the tomb and so he fulfilled the feast of unleavened bread passover is day one but there's a total of seven days where you were not supposed to eat leaven so jesus in the tomb fulfills unleavened bread and then the day after the sabbath which would have been that following sunday jesus raised from the dead because that was resurrection day that was the day of first fruits okay so jesus raised from the dead on the feast of first fruits he fulfilled those three feasts in his death burial and resurrection and then he appeared to people over a period of 40 days around 500 people and at the end of those 40 days he was on the mount of olives in israel his disciples were with him the and he ascended 
And he, but he told him before he left, he said, go wait in Jerusalem till you be clothed with power. We need the clothing of power. And Jesus basically, if I could paraphrase, said, look, I did not begin my ministry until I was clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was paraphrasing, You're, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But you go wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power. So they went there and they began to pray. And that went on for around 10 more days on the 50th day, the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost, as it's called today by us. Um, the Holy Spirit fell, not the day before, not the day after, on the day, Shavuot or Pentecost, on that day, the Holy Spirit fell. It was the birth of the church. They were filled with the Spirit. And so all four of those, out of the seven, those first four were fulfilled. The next three feasts will be Yom Teruah, which is trumpets, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles, which is Sukkot in Hebrew. Those three are yet to be fulfilled. Yom Teruah has to do with the catching away. Some use the phrase rapture, whatever. But the catching away to meet the Lord in the air, that is going to be fulfilled with Yom Teruah. Then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the day of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year tribulation that will be fulfilled during that time. And finally, when Jesus comes back, and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, and he actually goes into Jerusalem to reign on his father's throne, David. Right now, he's on his heavenly father's throne, but the prophecy was that he would sit on David's throne, okay? And when he comes to sit in Jerusalem on the throne of David and reign for a thousand years, that will fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles. So those are the three that have to do with his second coming. The first four were fulfilled in his first coming but the last three will be fulfilled in his second coming so they're still prophetic in front of us all right and then you need to look at the tabernacle of moses it's just kind of an overlay but you have the outer court if you do the math there's a, a thousand by 500 you know cubits and it's interesting because there was 1,500 years of the law of Moses. So the outer court prophetically speaks of the era, if you will, of the law of Moses. Then if you look at the holy place just to the left, you have 200 cubits by 100, and then it's 100 tall. So if you do the math, or 10 tall, I'm sorry, if you do the math, you get 2,000 square feet. And we are in the 2,000-year church age right now. So it's moved from the law of Moses to the church age, but we are at the end of that church age. You know what? There was 2,000 years from the time that Adam and Eve fell to Abraham. There was 2,000 years from Abraham till Jesus came. And there's been 2,000 years almost since Jesus was here. So we're at the end of this thing. It's starting to wrap up, okay? But that's the 2,000, yes, the church age. And then the holy of holies was 10 by 10 by 10 cubits. 1,000 square feet, which represents the 1,000-year reign of Christ. So you see like a timeline there as well. But when you look at the tabernacle, the reason I'm showing you this is so you can get a visual in your mind about the lampstand. 
because this was what God spoke to the church at Ephesus was about the lampstand. I'm going to get to that. In Hebrew, it's called the menorah, okay? So remember I said that if you laid a man down on his back where his head was at the Holy of Holies, okay, the altar of incense would be at his heart. His left hand would be where the table of showbread was. His right hand would be where the menorah is. Can you see that? So I'm going to come back to that later. Also, just a quick thing that you can do your own personal study about is that the table of showbread represents Passover, also the communion table. And then the menorah represents the Feast of Pentecost. And the altar of incense represents the Feast of Tabernacles. So we're looking at the church in Ephesus. Now, some of these things, I'll, I'll tell you, you probably want to jot down a couple things here in a moment, so just be ready for that. But here's some things, just in a nutshell, but I'm going to read a lot of stuff that's not in your notes. So I want you to follow along. We need to look at this church in the Bible called Ephesus. We need to understand a little bit about its inception. We need to understand about the city of Ephesus. We kind of need to get some groundwork because it makes sense when you read Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7, if you understand some things that we're going to cover. So y'all just follow with me, okay? But the city of Ephesus was known for its temple there to Artemis, which is Diana. This was one of the seven wonders of the world of that time. And Diana was known, if you look up the idols to Diana, called the many-breasted one because there's these rows of breasts. It was a fertility goddess, okay, which I'm going to come back to later. When Augustus became emperor in 27 BC, the most important change was when he made Ephesus the capital. So he made the city of Ephesus literally the capital of Asia Minor, and this would be where the governor's seat was, the throne. This was where legislation would have been discussed for that area. You following me? Because I've learned a long time ago that any time you have a capital where decisions are made, the devil tries to make sure there's principalities in that area to influence legislation. So Ephesus entered into an era of great prosperity, becoming both the seat of the governor and a major center of commerce. According to Strabo, it was the second in importance only to Rome. So this was a very significant city. So I'm going to read a couple things. I want you to really follow along with what I'm saying because these things are going to lay so much groundwork it's going to help you, but I need to read it. Now, as I said already, Ephesus was known for this temple to Diana. So there was this strong um, principality, if you will, over Ephesus that was connected to this temple. This temple had to do with Diana, and it was like a female deity of sorts, which according to Greek mythology was the daughter of Zeus and the sister of Apollo. So this was a very strong spirit in that region. The temple of Diana was so huge that it was, as I mentioned, one of the seven um, ancient wonders of that time. It was four times as large as the Parthenon in Athens. It was the largest city of its day. It was before the days that we're reading about now. Before that, 
It was a coastline city. It was a port city that even had a significant naval base. So you could sail into Ephesus, but because the Romans pulled up so many trees and there became erosion, it lost the status of being a naval base, but it was still an area that you could sail into. There was also a, a, um, a road that went through Ephesus that was significantly traveled. It was a place that had a massive library that had something like 200,000 books. This was before the printing press, by the way. It was a center of study of the arts, but also the study of witchcraft, magic, and the occult. Interesting. And today, Ephesus, along with those other seven churches of Asia Minor, are inside of modern-day Turkey. So this was, Ephesus was basically like the beautiful premier city of Asia Minor. And so here's the interesting thing about this. Paul had three missionary journeys. On his second missionary journey, he goes through Ephesus with his companion Silas. And this was around 50 to 52 AD. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth. And then he met their Priscilla and Aquila who became believers and helped Paul through his missionary journey. So he had Priscilla and Aquila with him. They were very capable. The couple followed Paul and his companions to Ephesus, and they stayed there to start a church. Paul and Silas left there and sailed to Caesarea to greet the church there and traveled north to Antioch. But my point is, is that on his second missionary journey, Paul went to Ephesus to minister for the first time, and he took Priscilla and Aquila with him. He would have left them there at a church that was started and they were there to teach and instruct and help the young believers. So this was like the groundwork. Sometime later, Paul begins his third missionary journey. And during his third journey, he travels to Ephesus and stayed there for nearly three years. In Ephesus, he performed great miracles, which I'm going to read about here in just a moment. Ephesus was a place that on Paul's third missionary journey, his second time through, they apparently did a really good job of laying some groundwork there in the church at Ephesus. But Paul saw the greatest revival of his ministry on his third missionary journey when he was in the city of Ephesus. Remember, this, was, this would have been, if I could use the word metropolitan, it, was, it would have been beautiful. It was a massive city. A lot of people would travel there. It was a place tourism would be. And it, it was the premier city of that area. And this is where God poured out his spirit significantly, which I'm going to read straight out of the Bible about that. But let me give you a couple things. If you're taking notes, you want to write down 1 Corinthians 15, 31. First Corinthians 15, 31. Listen to this. Paul's talking here to the Corinthians about what's going on in Ephesus. And he says this, he says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives, listen to what he says, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit, profit me? 
if the dead are not raised. So he's talking about something here. But he uses the phrase, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. I personally, this is my personal opinion. I don't believe that that was literal, that, you know, he fought wild beasts literally. I believe he's referring to principalities and powers. And then look at 1 Corinthians 16, 7. That would be another one to jot down. 1 Corinthians 16, 7. He says, For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I have hoped to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. He wanted to get to Pentecost. I'm sorry, he wanted to get to Jerusalem to celebrate. Remember I told you about the three pilgrim feasts? He wanted to get to Jerusalem for the feast of Shavuot or Pentecost. But he said, I will remain in Ephesus until then. Listen to what he says in verse 9. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. The King James says something to the effect of, an effectual door has opened, and many oppose me. Great opposition. So Paul referenced here to them, I'm staying in Ephesus because there's a great door that's opened a great move of God that's taking place, a great harvest of souls, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But he also says, I have great opposition, great adversaries. That's important. And we'll come back to that here in a moment. So remember he says, if I fought wild beast in Ephesus. Now listen to this. This is Acts chapter 19 if you're taking notes and if you want to turn to Acts chapter 19 verse 1 and just read with me but I'm going to read this chapter because you need to see this is when he went to Ephesus this was his third missionary journey and it's it's documented here what happened so it says this it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth see Paul had different leaders that worked with him and he trusted Apollos to be there to help lead the church in Corinth he left Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus so he's going he says okay it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So he's walking down a well-journeyed um, road, someplace that, you know, a lot of people would be taking to go in and out of Ephesus. It was an area of a lot of commerce, a lot of travel. And as he's walking up that road and he gets into Ephesus, he said he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what baptism were you baptized then? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John, he's talking about John the Baptist here. He said, John baptized was a, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. And so when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me just say something right there before I pass. Look, salvation is not a series of words that is chanted here. It's not something you necessarily repeat words or it's not joining a church. It's not religious ritual. It's not even keeping a set of rules per se, even though there's a place for do's and don'ts. But salvation is faith in Christ. You understand? That results in a new birth, all right? And listen to what it said. 
they it says paul said to them that john's baptism was of repentance telling them to believe on him who is to come in jesus they put their faith right then in jesus when they heard this they were baptized in the name of the lord that's a new birth all right anyway verse six when paul laid his hands upon them the holy spirit came on them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy there was about 12 men so you have when they believed in jesus they were born again the holy spirit came to live in them but paul then laid hands and prayed over them and the holy spirit came upon them there was a baptism in the holy spirit and they spoke in tongues and prophesied all right so verse eight he entered the synagogue there so he always kept the pattern first to the jew then to the gentile so he goes to the synagogue to try to win over the jewish community he continued to speak out boldly for three months reasoning and persu persuading them about the kingdom of god but when they became hardened and disobedient speaking evil of the way before the people they were speaking evil against the gospel he withdrew from them and took away disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. this took place for two years so that all who lived everybody say all who lived and the province of asia heard the word of the lord both jew and greeks isn't that amazing paul was there for a total of three years but he was there and there was such a move of god that that entire region heard the gospel it's amazing in verse 11 says this it says god was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them so just imagine, you know, Paul's there, he's preaching, he's praying with people. And there's people maybe too sick to travel or whatever, and they're bringing him handkerchiefs and aprons, and Paul's praying over them or whatever. He's, he's praying over them and releasing these, these claws and garments are going out with people. They're taking them back from where they came from and, and throwing them on the sick, and they're getting up healed. Or people that have demons, and they're being delivered. That's pretty amazing. In verse 13, it says, But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. When you're dealing with deliverance, you better know Jesus. <laughs> it says these, these exorcists were saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of a man named Sceva and a Jewish chief priest were doing this, eight men, and the evil spirit that was in that man answered them and said to those eight men, I know Jesus, and I know about Paul. Who are you? And he jumped on them, all eight of them. One guy beat up eight guys, okay? And it says, uh, and the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, subdued them, overpowered them, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Man, that must have been quite a beatdown. And this became known to all both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and the fear fell upon them, uh, fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Verse 18, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their evil deeds, their evil practices. And many of those who practiced magic, witchcraft, the dark arts, they brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them, which was 50,000 pieces of silver. That was great wealth at that time. 
So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So people in that region that were involved in the dark arts were getting saved and they were bringing all their occult paraphernalia to be burned, which is exactly what needed to happen. Verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Arrestus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now look at this. Remember where I'm going with this. I'm taking the scenic route, but it's very important because you'll understand here in a little bit. That temple to Diana. This was like a satanic stronghold. This, remember, this was the capital city of Asia Minor. This was the capital city where the seat of the governor was, where decisions were made. It was a place um, where a lot of learning took place. Uh, people, um, you know, it was a tourist area. It was a very beautiful area. But it also had a darkness to it. And in this region, there was this temple to Diana. And it, it was like a satanic stronghold. And there was like a principality there. And listen to this in verse 23. About that time occurred no small disturbance concerning the way that's referring to the gospel. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. This was that temple of Diana. That was worship. This guy probably made a lot of money from people that worshiped Diana there, from tourists that came into the area. As a silversmith, he would make these little idols to the goddess Diana, maybe some figurines to, you know, that look like the temple, whatever. But he was a silversmith, and that was his income. And it says it was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. So he was getting wealthy. Verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said to them, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of, number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Amen. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours is going to fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship, did everybody catch that? This is a widespread problem. Will even be dethroned from her magnificence, so verse 28 says, when they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So they started a riot. People now are beginning to chant. I'm telling you, you'll see this here in a moment. The principality of Diana, if you will, began to stir up this region against the gospel, what was going on. And the riot begins. All the people are chanting loudly, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus and Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples wouldn't let him. Also, some of the um, Asiarchs and who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him, do not go, Paul, to the theater. It's a bad idea. So then some were shouting one thing, some another. 
for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know what reason they had come together it sounds like some things going on today doesn't it And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward. And having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours. They're chanting for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're, they're, they're shouting how great this goddess Diana is and how great her temple is. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is, now listen to what he's saying here, is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven. The guardian, if you will, of this thing. So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and his craftsmen who are with you have some complaint, the courts are open, the proconsuls are available, let them bring their charges against each other. But if you want anything beyond this, it will be settled in a lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's event, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Can you see the spiritual warfare here? The disruption that the gospel and the power of God, the revival. See, that spirit, if you will, of Diana, which I'm going to show you, is the same spirit the Bible calls the spirit of Jezebel. This female deity, this stronghold, this principality that had been over that region all this time. Now, its stronghold was being challenged. Because the gospel now was teaching people to turn away from the temple, turn away from the idols, to renounce these false gods and turn into the living God. And it was being threatened. And it stirred up his little puppets, if you will, or, or Jezebel's little puppets. So... Let me say this. This was the beginning of the church in Ephesus, born in the fires of revival. As I told you last week, it ended up later on that John, after he got off the Isle of Patmos, John went and retired in Ephesus and became like the overseer. So the church in Ephesus was born in the fires of revival and had some of the best teachers that, to lay the groundwork. They had Priscilla and Aquila. They had Paul um, it's believed that Timothy oversaw him. Later, John came and oversaw him. It was a place of great revival, a place of the power of, of the Holy Spirit, a place where the Word of God was being presented. There was a great harvest of souls. It was a powerful church. In fact, most likely, it was the head church for that whole region. So with that in mind, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and we have that in our Bible called the book of Ephesians and this was his letter that Paul himself wrote to the church that he planted and if you read through it chapters 1 through 3 teach them who they are in Christ chapter 4 talks about listen to this keep this in mind you're dealing with a revival church a very effective church but you're also dealing with great spiritual warfare 
Do you remember Paul said, I wrestle beasts in Ephesus? I believe it was a reference to the, the principalities. And he also said a great effectual doors open, but great opposition. And so he's teaching the Ephesians, if I could paraphrase it this way, guys, we're, we're a revival church. We're seeing a harvest of souls. We're seeing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're seeing the power of God. It is no small thing, and it has stirred up the devil. And he said that you need to understand some things about spiritual warfare. And so in chapter 4, he's telling them, you better stay in unity. And then in chapter 5, he deals with living righteously and having your home in order. How important that is. Men to be the leaders of the home. Wives to submit in everything as unto the Lord and not rebel. Children to unobey their parents and not rebel. Paul was saying your home better be in order. Don't give place for this principality, for this spirit of Jezebel to find its way to hit your home. And then in, verse, in chapter 6, we all know Ephesians 6 is one of the most popular passages in the New Testament, but he teaches them about putting on the full arm of God. He teaches them about spiritual warfare, that you're not dealing with flesh and blood. You know, this guy Demetrius the silversmith, he may be a thorn in all of our sides, but Paul's saying he's really not your enemy, really. It's the spirit behind what he's doing. You're not wrestling flesh and blood. You're wrestling principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. So he teaches about spiritual warfare and about the armor and about your home being in, in order and there being unity. And also you need to know who you are in Christ. You need to have a godly confidence in that because you're coming up against warfare. So later on, after that great move of God, in Acts chapter 20, starting with verse 16, you may want to jot this down. If you want to look back over these, it's a really interesting study. That was Acts 19 I just read. Acts chapter 20, starting with verse 16. Now listen to this. This is his farewell address to the leaders at Ephesus. I'm reading straight out of the Bible, Acts 20, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was in a hurry, again, you see, to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. He wanted to be in Jerusalem for Shavuot, for the Feast of Pentecost. All right, so from there, anyway, he went to this little place called Miletus. And he sent for the Ephesian leaders to come there. So let me just explain this real fast. It's not a huge thing. But if he knew if he stopped in Ephesus, the crowds would all come. Paul's here. <laughs> so he wanted to not have to deal with that. He wanted to just pass through quietly and quickly on his way to Jerusalem. Because he wanted to be there for Pentecost. And so there was a little city along the coastline about 15 to 20 miles south of Ephesus called Miletus. And so he sails into there and he quietly sends some of his friends to go to Ephesus and get the leadership to come to him in Miletus where he can meet with them privately, okay? So you understand what's going on here. It's in, like an elders meeting. Verse 17 or verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them that he's speaking to the leadership, not everybody, just the leadership. 
and he's going to get very real with them. And he says this, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. See, churches back then were house to house. Verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am bound by the Spirit. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. He's prophesying to them. He's meeting with his leaders saying, You're not going to see me again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let me just stop there for a moment. On judgment day, I'm sure you feel this way like I do. I don't want to be guilty of the blood of any man. And the way that you're going to get that off you is by telling people the truth. Now, Jesus went about preaching the truth. Wouldn't you agree with me? Did everybody love Jesus? Some people hated him enough to want him dead. And not everybody loved Paul. But let me tell you something. He was innocent of the blood of men. Why? Because he told them the truth. And that's what he said here. I did not shrink back from preaching the whole counsel of God. I told it like it was. I didn't water it down. I didn't man please. I just simply told the truth. Some people love me for it and some people hate me for it. But when I stand before God, I'm going to be free of the blood of men. In verse 28, he said, be on guard for yourselves. For all, now, this is important because we're about to go to Revelation. Listen to what Paul's saying to his leaders. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, very important. Paul is prophesying here. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Y'all see that? Wolves in the Bible speak of evil men. He said, I'm telling you that when I go, that savage wolves, evil men are going to be sent by the devil to try to worm their way in among you and they will not spare this flock. Paul's saying, you're not going to see me again, and I'm warning you, you better deal with evil men. Don't let them worm their way in among you. Don't put them in leadership. Don't tolerate them. They're wolves. You'll see this here in a moment in Revelation. In verse 30, and he said, now listen to this. You're talking about telling it straight. He looks at them, and he says, and by the way, all you leaders that are here, even from among you, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And I wonder, because of the reference here in a moment to the Nicolaitans, 
if this wasn't a prophecy about that, I'm about to get there, okay? But he said, even from among you, some, of, some evil men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Verse 31, therefore be on the alert. Remember that day and night for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Did you know that's not mentioned in the Gospels? Isn't that interesting that we learn something um, through Paul? All right. Jesus said it's better, more blessed to give than to receive. And then verse 36, when Paul had said these things to his elders, okay, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship where he was going to sail out from Miletus. They, they didn't want to leave him, so they followed with him to spend as much time with him as they could all the way till he boarded the ship and set sail. And I can see him on the coast there crying and waving to him because they knew, you know, he said, we'll never see him again. All right. So now, we took the scenic route to get to Revelation chapter 2. <laughs> but now we're there, and you understand about the city. You understand about the satanic stronghold in the city. You understand how the church was birthed in that city in the fires of revival. So I believe now as we read Revelation, which was sometime later, when when Paul was there, you're looking at like, you know, 50 A.D. time frame when he first went through there. John wrote Revelation um, something around 90. So here John is on the Isle of Patmos. The Lord appears to him. And we know from last week that angels were giving him revelation. He's writing all this down. Revelation chapter 2, starting with verse 1. John wrote this, he said, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, angel can translate messenger. We know that in this case, it's referring to the overseers of the churches. It's not Paul, yeah, John wasn't writing to an actual invisible being, an angel, okay? He was writing to basically the pastor, the overseer. But to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write this. Now, keep in mind, hear this, this is important. We have the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote to this church. What I'm about to read to you is what Jesus Christ himself wrote to this church. So this is like their report card from Jesus. <laughs> I mean, you guys remember report cards. All right, so the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, which has to do with the leadership. Now remember this. Remember I told you if you laid a man down on the tabernacle, his left hand would be where the showbread, the table of showbread, where there was like a communion table. But his right hand would be where the menorah is. Do you see that? In his right hand are the seven flames or the seven stars. 
It says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Jesus basically saying, Jesus says, church in Ephesus, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. So, you know, first off, let me just say, it would have been difficult for them. You know, they were dealing with high-level spiritual warfare. I'm sure it was taxing. But not only that, but hosting such a move of God. So many people getting saved that needed to be brought in discipled, you know. And just, I'm sure that there was a lot of hard work that this church had to do. And Jesus said, I've seen that. I've seen your deeds that you toil and you persevere for me. And listen to what he said and remember the words of Paul. You cannot tolerate evil men. Remember that? Paul said, there's going to be wolves come in among you. Apparently, they took that serious and they didn't put up with them. They were willing to deal with sin. And Jesus said, and you put to test those that call themselves apostles, but they're not. So when Paul said, even from among you would arise evil men, they took that serious as well. And they put leadership to the test. Do you see this? These guys, the leaders at Ephesus, really took Paul's warning to heart and they applied it. And Jesus Christ himself commended them for it. Basically, if I could paraphrase, you listened to Paul when he told you that evil men would come. That even from among leaders, some would become evil. And you did not put up with them. He says, they call themselves apostles, but they're not. You found them to be false. And you have persevered you have endured for my name's sake and you've not grown weary but he says i have this against you that you have left your first love so here we are we're looking at our report card from jesus and jesus said i'm giving you an a plus here but then he you know he's giving them like a c or a d or something here he says you have left your first love And so the first love here, I believe, references a couple things. They were a church that were born in the fires of revival. Could it be that they lost that passion and that revival fire in their own heart? Also, could it be like Mary and Martha in the Gospels when Jesus went to Bethany and he was there with Lazarus and his two sisters and and remember, Martha was so busy going around cooking and cleaning and doing everything to host people. And her sister Mary's just sitting there at the feet of Jesus, wanting to spend time with Jesus. She's probably thinking to herself, the dishes can wait, man. You know, he's here. And Martha gets irritated with Mary and says, Jesus, why don't you tell her to get up and help me? And Jesus says, well, Martha, you know, what you're doing is good, but this is better. You know, she's spending time with me. Could it be... That maybe forsaking or leaving their first love, they got so busy with things that they neglected their prayer life and their personal relationship with the Lord. Also, there is an underlying layer of revelation here that if you're taking notes, you probably want to jot this down. It's very interesting. But the Greek words for first love can be translated supreme love feast. Isn't that interesting? And that's a reference to the communion table. So remember, keep this in mind. 
if a man laid down on the tabernacle so let me go ahead and say this now this would be a good time remember the head area would be like in the holy of holies but the chest where your heart is would be the altar of incense see that altar of incense what happened was it's very important look this way and hear me that altar of incense there was a hot coal every day by the way that was taken from the outside out of the fire it was a hot coal and it was put on the altar and the priest would take some incense and sprinkle it on that hot coal but how many knows if that coal loses it heat the heat in it it's not going to burn the incense see bottom line is our hearts have to stay on fire see the incense represents your praise your worship your prayer and intercession but it has to come out of a burning heart if your heart ever loses that fire what's going to wane the praise and worship is going to die your prayer life is going to die pretty soon you don't even go to church so you've got to keep that fire burning in your own heart then the left hand fell on the communion table there was 12 loaves of unleavened bread there was the fruit of the vine but there's a connection with that in your heart because if your heart ever has problems it sends a pain into your left arm your left hand you see there's a connection with this in the heart and you guys know when we take communion I try to do this every week we do it every week because in the early church they broke bread weekly I, you eat more than once a week it was a reference to the communion table that's the pattern and that table of showbread new wine new bread was added every week that's the pattern but anyway when we take communion what are we doing we're making sure that we forgive people and keep our hearts pure you see and confess and repent of any sin in our lives because the moment people start letting sin in and they don't repent that hot coal is going to begin a process of dying and so as we examine ourselves at the communion table then it says or I'm rather the left hand is there the right hand would lay on the menorah so that's where we're going Jesus says this verse 5 remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent now what does the lampstand according to revelation itself the bible interprets the bible what does the lampstand speak of it's god's family tree but also it represents the church it is a church it's the status of actually being considered a church by god himself do you see that if the lord jesus removes your lampstand that means you're no longer considered from his perspective to be a real church you're just a social gathering and how many knows whenever jesus removes your lampstand that there's going to be some darkness that's going to start coming in so he's saying get back to the deeds you did at first get your fire back get your prayer life back get corporate prayer back in the church again don't neglect the communion table where people are getting right with God they're examining themselves and they're reverencing the body and blood of the Lord because I'm telling you if you'll spend time at the communion table 
making sure everything's right with God. And you guys know I've taught so much on the communion table. There's a lot to it. There's a deep consecration, be brought under the blood, all that. But if you'll keep that, then the lampstand will be in place. That fresh anointing, that power of the Holy Spirit, that revelation, that light shining of revelation will be there. The power will be there if you don't neglect the communion table. Get back to the things you were doing at first. Unless you repent, he said, I will remove your lampstand. Now, I'm going somewhere with this because I got a couple more things as I close out. But verse 6, he says, yet this you do have in your favor here, that you hate the deeds or the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, remember, Paul told them in Ephesus, he said, there's going to be men even from among you, from among the leadership that will arise and what? Begin to teach perverse things and draw people away after them, okay? And I'm gonna show you that here in a moment. Verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, everybody says overcome. To him that overcomes, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So I'm gonna show you some things about this tree of life as well, but let me get to my notes here. Just look this way and listen. So the deeds of the Nicolaitans, Jesus commended Ephesus. He said, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus said, which I also hate. So what were the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Well, first off, there probably is something to this. Just like the communion table, the supreme love feast, there was kind of a layer of revelation with that. The word Nico, there is where you, where you get the word Nike, which is to rule over. It's a Greek word to rule. And Laetians has to do with the laity. And so there's an ungodly, like oppressive thing sometimes, which I'll show you here in a moment. That's a layer of revelation. But listen, uh, Dr. Cho did a good job of studying this out. And this is the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the Greek mindset of asceticism teaches that everything physical is evil and everything spiritual is good which is not true okay but that's the greek mindset in asceticism anything physical is evil anything spiritual is good how many knows there's some spiritual things out there that aren't good okay and according to jewish tradition the nicolaitans referred to in verse six were followers of nicholas one of the first seven deacons chosen by the early church. You guys remember when Peter and Paul, I mean, sorry, Peter and John, and these guys were saying, look, it's not good for us to neglect our prayer lives and the study of the word of God just to wait on tables all the time. Pick for yourselves seven men that are capable and we will pray for them and they will be deacons. They'll be servants, okay? Well, Nicholas was one of them. And it says, Nicholas, who had fallen from Orthodox faith, introduced Greek heretical philosophy into the church. He held the belief, listen to me, he held the belief that the spirit of man is good and pure in and of itself. That's dangerous right there. We need the blood of Jesus. But the body is fundamentally forever evil, which is not necessarily true because you can be sanctified throughout your spirit, soul, and your body. But he says the spirit is by no means affected by the activity of the body 
and listen, and remains pure no matter what the body does, including immorality. How stupid is that? So he's saying here that your spirit is pure no matter what your body does. So if your body goes out and sins, you're fine. Deception, heresy. Jesus said he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And Paul warned them. He said, there's going to be people, even from among you leaders, that will rise up. And apparently, uh, this was some people like this that are going to teach perverse things and that are going to lead people astray. All right. But Jesus commended that church because they didn't put up with it. They didn't put up with evil men, and they didn't put up with false teaching and evil people that were leading others astray into sin. And let me just tell you, anybody that ever tells you or makes you feel that you can live in unrepentant sin and go to heaven when you die, don't listen to them. All right. And the last couple things I want to cover, because remember Jesus was referring to, I'll give you to eat of the tree of life. There's a couple things interesting here. Remember that the stronghold in Ephesus, and I'm closing with this, but the stronghold in Ephesus was that temple to Diana. And it was like a strong principality over that region of what we would call, biblically, the Jezebel spirit. And this must have been the great enemy that they were dealing with in Ephesus. Now, here's something very interesting. In 300 AD, we know that Constantine came to power and he introduced Roman Catholicism and it perverted the church big time. So this was quite a few years later after Jesus sent this message to Ephesus, which would have been around 90 AD. This was 431 AD, okay? So this is several years later. Roman Catholicism had come to power. So Roman Catholicism, which did not, it was not pure Christianity, never was, it's not today. But there was an emperor, Theodosius II, that called like a general council meeting at Ephesus to consider the hotly argued question of the time whether the Virgin Mary should be described as the mother of God. And about 200 bishops at this time, it was an ecumenical council, decided, yes, she should be. This decision in Ephesus was a Roman Catholic decision to begin to move Mary up into like a more of a deity type figure, okay? The mother of God. This led into the whole thing with the queen of heaven that's worshiped to this day in Roman Catholicism. Which is none other, you gotta understand, behind the statuary of Diana and behind the statuary of Roman Catholicism, there is a spirit that goes back to this area in Ephesus that has none other than Jezebel, the Jezebel spirit, the queen of heaven, if you will, which we'll get more into as we go through the book of Revelation 17 and 18. So Roman Catholicism to this day, I don't want to dwell on this because it's a rabbit trail, but to this day, look it up because some people don't believe until they look it up for themselves. And they're like, oh yeah, he's right. They do not believe in the gospel that we believe. Roman Catholicism believes from the Vatican officially, they believe that you're saved through the Roman Catholic Church by being a good little Catholic. 
And I have people here that were Catholic that will verify what I'm saying is just simply the truth. So they don't believe in a new birth in a personal relationship with Jesus. They don't. And so Roman Catholicism is replete with various statuary, pagan practices, etc. But there's a stronghold there of the queen of heaven that goes all the way back. Are you seeing this? Goes all the way back to Ephesus where this strange debate took place about deifying basically Mary and there's this worship of some kind of a female God that worked its way into Roman Catholicism, which was kind of the church of that time. But let me add that I don't think until Jesus comes that we're going to get out of being blamed for everything that Roman Catholics did back in the Dark Ages. But let me just remind you that anybody that truly accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and claimed to have a personal relationship with him was hunted down and tortured and killed by Roman Catholics, okay? So we're still getting blamed for what they did, but the truth is that those that were born-again Christians were hunted down and persecuted by the Roman Catholics, okay? That's another story for another time. All right, so there's weird beliefs. I mean, I'm going to close with this. I'm trying to move quickly. Weird beliefs that's in paganism and the occult to this day, but it's ancient. You guys are familiar with some of this. There has always been this weird male-female deities that go all the way back. Ancient Samaria, you have Nimrod, who was referenced in the Bible, and his wife, Semiramis. In Egypt, Osiris and Isis. Isis. Among the Greeks, you had Zeus and Hera. Among Rome, you had Jupiter and Juno. And in the Bible, you'll be familiar with Baal and Asherah. You see? There's always been this weird masculine, feminine deity that's seen there. And Satan has tried to bring some kind of a weird doctrine through the ages. Now listen, when Adam and Eve fell, Satan was there, and God told the devil... He said, I'm going to send through the woman one that you will strike his head or strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. So Satan knew that there was going to be a Messiah that would come through a woman. So down through the ages, Satan has tried to pr promote as much deception and weirdness as possible in various belief systems around the world to muddy the waters so that when the actual Messiah came, they would, the world would be so deceived by so many things that it would just seem like another belief system. Let me give you an example with Nimrod and Semiramis. That was his wife, and Nimrod ends up dying, but everybody worshipped him like some kind of a god or something, and she was afraid she was going to lose her, her prestige, her throne, and so she was pregnant with his baby, who was named Tammuz, and she says, look, this was Nimrod reincarnated. And so they began to believe that this was some kind of a god child, some kind of a special baby. Do you see the masculine, the feminine, and bringing forth some kind of a, a god seed? But it's a counterfeit. Is this making sense? And did you know that weeping for Tammuz is even referenced in your Bible, that the children of Israel were doing that? It went back to this ancient practice. And there's also, down through the ages, there's always been this really strong female deity that takes on different masks, but it's the same spirit of Jezebel through the ages. 
or at least the biblical name would be Jezebel or the queen of heaven. But remember Isis, Diana, Astarte, Venus, Ashtoreth, Ishtar. Different names for the same spirit. That we see this spirit in the book of Revelation come to full power in Revelation 17 and 18 as the whore of Babylon. That's what the Bible calls her. Y'all following me still? And there's also, Satan knows that, you know, in the Garden of Eden, there was this tree of life. And Adam and Eve in a garden basically said to God, if I could paraphrase, not your will, my will be done. And they ate of the knowledge of good and evil, and we know the story. Well, Jesus, all those years later, is in a garden, and he basically says, not my will, your will be done. And he's obedient even to the death. And the cross, Galatians 3.13 says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. The cross was a tree of death to him, but it is the tree of life to us. Does that make sense? So the cross is the tree of life. So Satan has been trying down through the ages again to muddy the waters with all this weird deception with this concept of the tree of life. You have this weird homa tree to the Persians, um, the Lapisoma tree of the Hindus, the tuba tree of the Arabs, the lotus tree of the Greeks, which is interesting that the word lotus, because in yoga, people sit in a position called the lotus position, where supposedly, you know, you can blank out your mind, there's various chakras that go down the spine. It's weird. It goes back to Hinduism. And as Christians, I'm just telling you, some that have wisdom will listen, others won't. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. But anyway, and then the weird tree in Assyria, even with the Orthodox and Hasidic Jews that do not believe in Messiah, there is this weird Kabbalah, the Kabbalah tree of life. It's a counterfeit. Do you see how Satan has been trying to muddy the waters with counterfeits down through the ages? He knew in Genesis 3 that a Messiah would come. He tries to pollute the human genome. He does everything he can to try to stop this from happening. When Moses is born, he knew something significant was happening, so he stirs up the Pharaoh to throw all the male babies in the Nile to kill him. And then when Jesus is born, he stirs up Herod to go in and slaughter all the male babies. He's doing everything he can to stop the coming of this one that God told him will crush your head. And he, even in this, he's tried to put so much deception out there among the various nations of the earth to muddy the waters and bring so much confusion. By the time Messiah came, it just seems like another mythology. And this is what I want to close with. Jezebel wants your menorah. The Jezebel spirit wants to take that fire right out of your life. That's one of the great enemies of revival is a Jezebel spirit. It's no accident. God could have poured out his spirit in Philippi. He could pour out his spirit in Antioch. He poured out his spirit in Ephesus and birthed that fiery church. And they went right up against that stronghold. And you know, it's interesting. This is just, um, it's not in the Bible. It's just believed among the Christians of that time. And it's a story that the apostle John, when he left Patmos, he went there to Ephesus where that great church was a great revival had happened all you know so much was there and he ended up by the leading of the Lord went to the temple of Diana and he knelt and prayed that God would break the power of that stronghold 
And did you know, according to tradition, that the altar there split and the offerings that were on it fell on the ground and people that saw it ran away screaming. <laughs> so the Jezebel spirit, what they were coming up against, that revival church, that spirit that was there, I don't have to teach on it with you guys. You're familiar with it. But if Satan can worm people in like that that are controlling they want to control leaders. They want to bring something into the church that, that is demonic. Evil men, evil women. If the devil can, he'll steal the menorah out of a church. And many times he'll try to use a Jezebel spirit to do it. We've got to keep our first love. And let me say one more thing. Isn't it interesting that Jesus warned the Ephesians? He said, if you're not careful, evil men will come. Or, or Paul warned this rather, but he said, if you don't repent, he said, I will remove your lampstand. Isn't it interesting that Roman Catholicism comes to power in 300 AD? Follow me, this is important. And in Catholicism to this day, you see that there's always a very strong female. Mary is like a very strong dominant figure. And Jesus is always like inferior. He's either a baby or he's a dead man in her arms. You don't see him a risen, masculine, strong figure. He's still on the cross. You see, that's the queen of heaven. That's Jezebel. And isn't it also interesting that once Roman Catholicism came in and perverted the church, that even the secular world refers to the result of that as the dark ages. The menorah was lost and it led into the dark ages. So we've got to keep our first love. We've got to keep our passion and our hunger, the Pentecostal fire that burns in us, the revival and river of life. And just like Paul warned and Jesus warned, we cannot tolerate evil men. We can't tolerate evil leaders. And we cannot put up with a Jezebel spirit. The communion table seems to be connected to the menorah. If you'll keep the communion table and keep your heart pure and on fire, that menorah of anointing and power and revelation will be strong. You know, I went to a place called Cambridge, Kentucky, where there was a great revival happened in 1801 time frame. Started out Red River Revival, moves to Cambridge, major move of God in our nation's history. The military reported something like 25 to 30,000 people descended. The Holy Spirit fell so powerful. People by the tens, people by the hundreds, and sometimes even several hundred would just be struck to the ground under the power of God and get up totally saved and radical for Jesus. It was a major move of God. But during that time, you have to understand, this was so many years ago. You know what the presiding churches involved were? Number one, Presbyterian number two the baptist and number three the newly formed uh, methodist but you know what's sad to this day is i've been out there it's kind of a museum it's sad to me that there's still a menorah so to speak if i could say that there's still a menorah sitting out there that they have walked away from and forsook y'all hear what i'm saying the lord gave them a menorah but they've moved on to religion and they're fine without the power of God. How many knows we need the Holy Spirit? We need the power of God. 
All right. Let's go ahead and shut down recordings. I'm going to pray for people tonight that want prayer. There is an anointing. We need a 